Hello, this is Megan O'Rourke, and today we'll be mapping chronic illness on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. And if you have a minute to rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please do. Your reviews help us get the message out to more people that functional nutrition really does matter. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'm so excited to be speaking with Megan O'Rourke. Megan O'Rourke is the author of the books The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, and The Long Goodbye, as well as the poetry collections Sun in Days, Once, and Half-Life. Her writing has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, and more. A former editor at The New Yorker, she has served as culture editor and literary critic for Slate, as well as poetry editor for the Paris Review. The recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Radcliffe Fellowship, and a winning nonfiction award, she resides in New Haven, where she teaches at Yale University and is the editor of the Yale Review. Megan, congratulations on the new book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. And thank you so much for being with us here on the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true delight to be here. Oh, so excited. I can't wait to dive into this topic with you. We are talking about chronic illness today. And that encompasses more of the conditions that are occupying our minds in our clinics in the fields of functional medicine and functional nutrition, and really the underlying interests of this podcast. What are the conditions that you typically define as chronic? Yeah. So as I say in the book, I use the term chronic illness and a few other terms almost interchangeably in one way, which is that I really wanted to capture something about the lived experience of a condition that doesn't go away, whatever it might be, right? Because I do think we live in a culture that really prioritizes kind of muscle through it, recover the story of dramatic illness and overcoming it, right? We don't have great stories and support for people who actually live day to day with some condition. So I use the term chronic illness broadly, but In the book, I'm more specifically trying to address what I call a silent epidemic of chronic illnesses that are often marginalized, contested, or even unrecognized. And those illnesses, also called invisible illnesses, you know, may include autoimmune diseases, myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome or chronic Lyme disease or chronic tick-borne disease, dysautonomia, mast cell activation syndrome, fibromyalgia, long COVID, you know, food sensitivities, all these things are what I talk about. 
Yeah, and you say it so beautifully there, these ways that they kind of go under the radar. And I do want to talk about that a little bit. And you bring such a unique perspective to the topic. Megan, you're a patient, you're a researcher, you're a writer, you're a poet. So as we all just heard, you can put this beautiful way of talking about the difficult to discuss. Really, you are able to articulate it so well. And I want to ask you to help us dive into how we got here. What is the historical or the Western definition of illness that leaves us sort of tied in a knot when it comes to helping those who are suffering? Yeah, such a good and big question. So I'll try yeah. to um, <laughs> I'll try to answer it more succinctly than I do in the book, but a lot of the book is trying to answer this question. So I'm glad you asked it. But I really trace some of the problems we have in diagnosing and treating these diseases to the advent of germ theory in the 19th century, right? Where medicine moves to this idea of, thank goodness, right, it saved many lives, that infectious diseases are caused by a single observable pathogen, you know, you treat it and the person gets better. Around the same time, medicine is pivoting to an emphasis on measurement, right? away from an earlier holistic emphasis that even Western medicine had on the role of an individual's constitution and toward really measuring specific effects that are you know, able to be found in a laboratory, whether it's a broken bone or a germ, and then kind of to this model where it's supposed to be replicatable, right? The German bacteriologist Robert Koch in 1890 laid out these postulates where in essence what he was saying was that one of the ways we know there is a disease is that it can act similarly in different people. A bacteria should affect everyone pretty much the same way. This, you know, created a pretty tidy vision of disease that we should be able to see it, we should be able to measure it, and it should look the same in people. That idea got us better health, right? It really helped us treat many conditions that medicine couldn't treat before it, but it had the funny effect along the way of marginalizing and making suspect those people whose bodies live at the edge of medical knowledge, right? Those people whose diseases we don't yet have a good test for. There's sort of this way in which if there's not a test for it, then the disease doesn't exist, which we know is, you know, not logical. (laughs) It also moved away from medicine thinking about the role of biography, the role of how biography and story intersects with biology. And it turns out personalized medicine, the work you do, you know, your audience really understands that those two things going together tell us a lot about a person's health and their illness situation. Yeah, so much I'm just on fire to respond to (laughs) there. And like, yes, yes, yes to so much of what you said. Part of it being the trajectory of our medical thinking being what we want to recognize as a yes and. As you said, there's so much benefit that came from that trajectory and that germ theory that we are reliant on. And yet it left aside or that whole notion of biography or biographical disruption and really put those of us who fall outside of the standard diagnostics in a place of searching and seeking and not getting the support or the help that we need. 
I call it being evidence enslaved instead of evidence informed. So when we're evidence enslaved, and I know you love the evidence and you look for the evidence and it's informed your journey, but some of what we have to do falls outside of what might be in the studied evidence. Yeah, exactly. Right. And one of the problems we're facing now is, you know, and your listeners know more than anyone, is that we're in the middle of this really extraordinary rise of immune-mediated diseases that we barely understand, right? So you actually, and now with the advent of the pandemic, also long COVID, right? So you have rising autoimmune diseases, you now have long COVID. You have now just like millions of people who are living at the edge of medical knowledge, and we have a system that's very unsure how to approach people in that position, you know, sometimes actively hostile to them, right? And sometimes, you know, we meet practitioners or doctors who are want to help, but really aren't equipped to because the studies aren't there, exactly as you say. Yeah, I've been researching and thinking into this arena of medical gaslighting recently. And a lot of times it comes without intention. It really is just that the doctors aren't trained to think outside the box or to really think outside the brain in a way into what might be happening in the body. And you mentioned long haul COVID. And I think this is bringing some of these symptoms to the scale. It's calling us to attention really in a way that those of us who have lived through something similar without it being that have lived through. Can you speak into what you found with the advent of what's termed long haul COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, you know, there's so much we don't know, right? But I did some reporting and research early on in the pandemic at the Mount Sinai Center for Post-COVID Care, where a group of practitioners really took seriously the testimony of patients who came to them and said, we are just not getting better. So rather than dismiss them, they looked at this reporting system they had, which was where patients could report symptoms. And they were just astonished to find that a huge percentage of the people who had called in to say we have COVID or even gotten diagnosed officially with COVID were still reporting symptoms, you know, four, six, seven, eight weeks out, right? In a way that's familiar to us now. And one thing they did say to me was that it was the scope of the problem that alarmed them and also that some of these people were their own colleagues. And as the director of the center, Dr. Zijin Chen told me, he said, you know, that really shook me because I knew, you know, this person, I knew I trusted this person that they were telling the truth. Now, you know, one could wish they trusted all patients who came in and said, I've got problems. Certainly I do. But I think it's an interesting social fact that so many doctors now are living with one of these conditions, right? That it's shifting in a lot of the areas of medicine that I've been reporting on. A lot of medical professionals have a new openness to thinking about infection associated or these long stigmatized diseases like ME-CFS and even dysautonomia. So basically what the researchers I've talked to say is that we're still looking for answers, but it does seem to be that, you know, the virus is intersecting with some people's biology and history in a way that's leaving them with immune dysfunction or chronic blood clotting or damage to the autonomic nervous system that can result in postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, 
or combinations of these that they don't fully understand. The other thing that they've flagged for me is that they are seeing evidence that SARS-CoV-2 triggers just an enormous amount of autoimmune disease so that some people who might have gotten an autoimmune disease, you know, 10, 20 years from now, as one of my sources put it, are getting it six months after they got infected at the age of 23. So he's really concerned. This was David Petrino, who's at Mount Sinai. He said, you know, he's really concerned about the kind of exponential growth that we might see in autoimmune disease, as well as whatever other sources of long COVID there may be. One thing he said that I found really helpful was that he and other researchers, he's not a researcher, he's a practitioner, clinician, a lot of them think that we're going to end up finding several or even more than several etiologies toward, you know, pathways to long COVID, that long COVID may end up really being a cluster of different conditions, what we're calling it now. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it also makes sense that the COVID, as like any other infection, EBV or tick-borne illness, does act as a trigger for an autoimmune activation in the immune system. Like It makes sense when we understand how the body functions and really how everything works. So we have to be aware of that new trigger. It also makes me think about something else I heard you say in another interview, Megan, where not only were and are more doctors and medical practitioners experiencing what's termed long haul, but they're able to articulate it and articulate the symptoms in ways that patients may not be able to when there's something chronically happening or invisible or incessant happening. And so that was really interesting to me because then it's that bridge of speaking the language that can be heard. Absolutely. That's such a, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the people I interviewed was a doctor in New York who was one of the very first people, I think, um, to realize that COVID was triggering POTS in some patients. And that was because she herself had a mild case and then, you know, was thought she was recovering and one day sat up to go to the bathroom and just her heart raced and she almost fainted and she was exhausted and suddenly brain fog, all these problems. And then as she observed herself over the next few days, she said, like, she told me a light bulb went off in her head and she was like, wait, I was just treating someone with POTS and I'm going to go read this paper. And she dug up a bunch of papers that had come out of Wuhan really early on where they did report a few incidences of people seeming to have POTS after an infection. And she basically called Mount Sinai and was like, I think this is what's going on with me and other people. Can you research it? And, you know, it's just having a language, as we all know, having frameworks to talk about these seemingly mysterious and in fact, quite complicated conditions really helps us as patients and helps us as a, you know, a kind of nation <laughs> of medical professionals trying to interact with patients, right? And I think one reason I wrote this book was to try to create language for an experience that's really skated over in a 10-minute doctor appointment of the kind we so often have. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so thankful you did. I think that bridge of language also something I feel really passionate about. I think there's a huge divide that's happening within that 10 to 17, sometimes seven minute appointment where I don't know what to compare it to other than like men are from Mars, right? Like it's like this this notion that two people have this small time to connect on something that's so important, at least to one of the parties and seemingly to the other party, but they do not have shared language and they don't have a shared understanding. And that is really creating more of the divide for people with chronic illness. The other thing that what you just said makes me think of is going back to that notion of evidence informed and where something like what we're experiencing with long haul makes us have to look at the correlative versus the causative because we don't know the causative. And there's so much fear today going back to what we were originally talking about with the history of how we got here in medicine. There's so much fear of looking at the correlative, but this makes us have to look at the correlative. Yeah. It's really true. And I ended up thinking a lot about the idea that medicine is by design an essentially conservative practice, right? It wants to take evidence and act on it, which we've talked about all the reasons that's important. But there are these junctures in history and medical history where we need insight. And I think that it's very scary for many doctors to try to treat the patient versus the disease or the algorithm. And I don't think our system supports doctors in doing that. I don't think their education supports them in that, right? So it's been really interesting talking to researchers and scientists and obviously with my own experiences of kind of working with you and the matrix, just to see how there are these groups of doctors who are willing to take a more open-minded approach and say, okay, I don't know what's wrong, so I'm going to see if I can help you. And that is what Mount Sinai has been doing, where they've really noticed a lot of patients have food sensitivities after contracting COVID. So, okay, we don't know why, we don't know if they're related to your point, we don't know if it's causative, but we're going to treat it. And we need a system that pivots to that more Fully. I asked a, one of my sources, this woman, Susan Block, who is at Harvard, and she was a founder of palliative care, you know, why doctors were so worried about this. And she said, it makes them anxious because they don't want to be wrong. They're supposed to be the authority. And it's just really scary that they might miss something medical, or as she put it, they're worried about being made a fool of by a patient who's psychiatrically ill, which is sad that that's their concern. But in her view, that was really what was underlying a lot of it, that they didn't want to be humiliated. And so they pathologize the patient in other ways. Yeah. And this is where this kind of treatment becomes more of an art than a science. And maybe again, it's the yes and or the both and. And I want to talk about that from a patient perspective, especially given that you're looking at all the research and you're speaking to all these doctors, but you are and have been a long-term patient with a chronic illness, if I may say so, because yes, you're right absolutely. About it. You can say it all. <laughs> right. It is not a it's, it's not no private. secret. <laughs> so I think that that 
area of embracing the correlative is something that we as patients end up taking on ourselves. And I wonder if you could just speak into that. Like, what is the reality from a patient experience of managing or journeying with a chronic illness? Yeah. So, you know, I met you when I was really sick, right? And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And actually doing your matrix, which I know is the the frame for our conversation, was really illuminating and helpful for me because it took what had been this kind of chaotic list of symptoms I kept, which felt like it had no rhyme or reason, and itself made me worry that something, you know, was wrong in my head, as it were, right? Because I had strange buzzing sensations in my body. I couldn't eat. Anytime I ate, I felt really sick afterward. I got a headache and very tired. I basically was living this life of what felt like chaos and disconnection, right? I had a labral tear in my head. I just had this wild array of problems. And I had, was experiencing the reality that when I tried to tell a doctor about them, they clearly thought I was neurotic, right? Or anxious, right? Because here's like this wild array. And some of them were like, my left thumb was numb, right? Part of my left. It was just a, a strange array of things. It didn't add up to one part of the body, one system. And so I, at that time, you know, really didn't understand very much about my own body or I had been raised in a medical culture and a sort of culture broadly that thinks about the body as a collection of parts, like a car, right? And I didn't have a holistic sense of my own body. So it wasn't until I started doing things like filling out your matrix that I began to understand that actually my body was interconnected and that my thyroid problem might in fact be related to my dizziness, might in fact be related to heart palpitations to, and maybe actually the joint pain was somehow connected, right? There's sort of this array of things that suddenly started to take, went from being shadows in the darkness to having shapes I could make out and make sense of. And for me, even though I still didn't really have a diagnosis, just having a sense that there was perhaps a kind of logic to what was happening and that these so-called small things, I just kept saying, I have all these small things. It was always cold, just strange stuff. Um, Actually were signs of a body really failing, right? Even though I would go to the doctor and they'd say, you look perfectly healthy, right? I was slim. I had low cholesterol. From their perspective, I was healthy. But in fact, I was really sick. And it was not until I saw nutritionists like you or I had a wonderful acupuncturist that anyone said to me, you're really struggling, you know? <laughs> and I don't know if that gets to your question, but that's what I think about is just that period of, of not being able to make any sense of it. And then the power for me, even without cure or definitive diagnosis, the power of beginning to be able to understand my own triggers and to manage them, like not to eat gluten, to go to sleep earlier, you know, et cetera. Right. So important. I mean, it's, I'm so humbled to hear you talk about the matrix and our work. I can remember Megan seeing your piece on Hashimoto's in the New Yorker and really being astounded that it was one of the first popular pieces or pieces in a popular media 
forum about something that at that point nobody was really speaking about. And that's when I reached out to you and invited you to be in the program. And miraculously, you said yes. That was like, you know, I was <laughs> thrilled that you said yes. And that was the start of our communications with each other. But I'm really humbled that you got it and you kind of had to get it, right? So the mantra of this podcast is everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. It's my mantra in terms of like, we have to say, and that, and that, and that, and the bedtime, and lunch matters, and your community matters, and that food poisoning that you had at 12 matters, and the way you were born matters, right? Like it's this tying together that allows us to see that whole biography and sit in that place. And I don't know that we can be looking to our medical providers to think like that. I do think it's a gap in our medical care for the chronically ill, which as you said, is a growing population. And I think we just need more people who can sit in that unknown, who have more room to make mistakes and track and be in it with the patient. And I feel like we're putting too much pressure on one system of care. And I just wonder your thoughts on that. Oh, I mean, you've put it so beautifully. I cannot agree more. And one of the things I really try to talk about in the book is the ways in which one of the saddening aspects of being a patient going to the, med- the sort of Western medical system is that what they think you want and what you may in fact want are probably pretty different, right? I mean, I think my doctors wanted to give me an answer and a cure, and I applaud them for it. I, of course, wanted an answer and a cure, but I also wanted to get through my day even 10% better than I was, right? At that point, I would have taken just help me, help me function. If I can have a morning in which I'm able to read and take a walk, that's, you know, a good start. And that was never on the table as the conversation, right? The conversation was never, what are your goals? We don't have answers for you. And how can we help you get there? And that's why turning to functional nutrition and functional medicine was so important to me, because it gave me a space where I felt I had a collaborator. in if the answer wasn't going to be there right away, how was I going to live with my illness? and be validated too, right? Which is something we haven't really talked about, but is really important. I don't think you can come to any kind of experience of integrity being sick if the reality of your sickness is held in question by people around you, right? So when it comes to this kind of, you know, matrix of care, I think there's two things that are really important for patients. And one is validating validating the uncertainty (laughs) and living in that uncomfortable space while being willing to take, you know, an experimental approach that's informed by logic, right? It's like, we've sort of forgotten that there's a space between illogic and evidence, right? There's a huge space. And that space is filled, I think, by the kind of work that you do and your listeners do. I have a whole chapter in the book about this, like why this was really important to me and what I think Western medical doctors don't understand about the patient's experience. 
Oh my gosh. And that becomes a part of the biography and the biography of disruption as well, that lack of validation and what that does to us, as well as the frustration. Like those things matter too. I have so many things I want to talk to you <laughs> I about, know, Megan. I know. And we didn't touch on like a lot of things, but I have one final question for you, which is what just feels most exciting to you in and with the release of this book? What are you most excited for people to kind of come to awareness about? It's interesting. When I began the book, which was in 2013, people weren't really talking about autoimmune disease in popular culture the way they are now. So it's been exciting to see growing awareness. My biggest hope for the book is that it could do two things. One is to illuminate the lived experience of invisible illness, right? To help make it visible to others who don't suffer from them, but maybe are, have a partner who does, or a mother or a father. I also really hope it might help medical professionals think a little bit differently about their patients whose illnesses they don't understand. And finally, I mean, I really hope that it could help start a conversation about this huge silent epidemic that is, as you said, going under the radar and bring us to a place of better understanding and more effective you know, treatment and help for the people who live with invisible illnesses. That was three things. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't wait. And I can't wait to continue conversation with you, with this community. I can't wait to everybody gets their hands on the book and we can discuss it. Megan, thank you so much for being with me here today, for taking time out of your busy writing schedule mm -hmm. and for all the work you do. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I know we could, we could talk for hours, but this has been a true, true pleasure. <laughs> The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our full body systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.